Hello, this is Jeremiah Broderick, author of Removing the Dragon Skin, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. We will be who we are becoming. Our direction determines our destination. A recurring theme in all of the Narnian books is the relationship between our character and our actions, between the type of person that we are in the way that we respond to our circumstances. Live like a Narnian. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 40, Live Like a Narnian, After Hours with Dr. Joe Rigney. Welcome everyone, here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. But as usual, this is an After Hours conversation. And a book I am really excited for us to dive into because, as you guys know on the podcast, I love to attempt every episode to take whatever we're discussing in a Lewis work and figure out, okay, how does this challenge me, my spiritual journey, my discipleship journey? And this is what we're going to get in this book. It's going to dive into how Narnian, the Narnian book series can help us with that. And so I chose the quote from this, it's from chapter three, because I just felt it was truly profound, not only because I believe it to be true, but it's also incredibly encouraging. Uh, I've been honest on this podcast with ups and downs in my life. And sometimes when you're in a down spot, you can look at the gap of where you want to be and where you are, and it can be very discouraging. But when you recognize just the direction you're going and just making that slight shift can be an incredibly encouraging statement in a dark period because you know that if you just make these slight shifts as they compound, they will change your destination. And that's what is so important. And so we're going to get some tips in here, I think, from the Narnian books of, of ways that we can do that. And so without further ado, today I'm joined by Dr. Joe Rigney. Dr. Rigney is a pastor at Cities Church in St. Paul. And he serves as a teacher at Desiring God. He is the author of five books, including Lewis on the Christian Life, Becoming Truly Human in the Presence of God, and a book endorsed by two former guests on the show, Douglas Wilson and Devin Brown, which is Live Like a Narnian, Christian Discipleship in Lewis's Chronicles. And I believe, as we'll hear in a second, Dr. Joe Rigney has uh, a new chapter in his life that's coming up. And so, Dr. Rigney, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thanks for having me. This is great. Glad to be here. Yes. Uh, and what's this new chapter that's coming up? Yeah. So, um, you know, for the last 18 years, uh, I've served in various capacities here in, in Minnesota, especially as a professor at uh, Bethlehem College and Seminary, and most recently as the president of the school for the last two years. But beginning next fall, uh, I've taken a position at New St. Andrews College in uh, Idaho, uh, in Moscow. And so uh, my family and I will be moving out there this summer to, uh, to start a new chapter. And uh, so I'll be teaching theology, some literature, various other things, serving uh, out there in, in a church capacity as well. So yeah, it's, it's a bittersweet time. We've loved our time here in Minnesota. We love Bethlehem and cities and the communities that we've had here. But uh, the Lord is moving us into uh, into the next thing, and the next thing is out west. I love it. I actually just got back from Boise, Idaho, three weekends ago, and that was my first time going to Idaho. Stunningly beautiful. It is the crisp air, the mountains. I'm much more of a mountain than a beach person, and so just being there, hiking. We went up to McCall. It was just incredible. So I'm a little jealous. Yeah, we're excited about it. Like you know, I've, I've uh, I'm a graduate. I, I did a master's degree there about a decade ago. And uh, a lot, lot of friends out there. So mm. there's a 
already kind of some some preparations there for us. And uh, I'm excited about uh, being able to teach and lead students to great literature and and teach theology um, out there with those uh, with those students. That is beautiful. And I have to ask too before we go in because. This was the first book I've read of yours, Live Like an Arnian. And the next one I'm going to be reading very quickly is the one that I mentioned, Lewis on the Christian Life, Becoming Truly Human in the Presence of God. First of all, incredible title. I don't know if you came up with the title or the publishers helped with that, but Becoming Truly Human in the Presence of God is already making me wonder what that's talking about. Yeah. Uh, and so, what's like a quick one, two-minute summary of what that book is is getting to? Yeah. So, that book's a part of a series that Crossway uh, put together, uh, Theologians on the Christian Life. And so, they, they have volumes with you know Jonathan Edwards and John Newton and John Owen and so on and so forth. And uh, after I'd done Live Like a Narnian, and then I'd also, um, I guess this was probably after I had done Things of Earth, uh, which is kind of my, my main book, I, I guess you could say at some level. They approached me and said, hey, we've got this series and we'd love for you to contribute the Lewis book with the goal of kind of what does this theologian, and Lewis is a little unusual. The other guys are pastors or Edwards and Newton and Owen and, and Spurgeon and guys like that. Lewis is a little different because he's a unusual kind of person. He's a you know scholar, professor of medieval and Renaissance literature, but he's also this popular apologist. He was never a pastor. So mm-hmm. um, what does he have to say about the Christian life? And so that was an exciting project. I said, okay, uh, I'll, I'll give that a go. <laughs> and so I spent, I actually, I think basically did what it sounds like you guys are doing uh, here on Pines with Jack, which is like read or listen through all of Lewis's works, uh, which I did and in some cases multiple times. Audible has this great, like all of Lewis's essays. I don't know if you've, you've ever used I this. have that. Yes. So it's like 40 hours of Lewis. And so I listened to that through a couple of times, probably over the span of a, of a year or so. I, I you know, obviously I was familiar with a lot of it, um, but just kind of, you know, listening and listening and listening. I'm an auditory learner. And uh, what are the, um, what are the key themes that show up as he just, and it was interesting to hear the same things kind of come up again and again and again. And so as I tried to organize it, like what's the center? Because each book in this series kind of had one like encapsulating, you know, statement, that subtitle. And uh, as I considered it, it seemed to be that what Lewis comes back to again and again is that we're always in God's presence because he's everywhere um, and he's pursuing us. And yet we're often asleep to it, numb to it, dead to it. And therefore the task of life is to wake up to reality, wake up to mm-hmm. the reality of who God is and the reality of what he's done in Christ and, and be transformed. And when we're transformed, it's not a sort of flight or escape from human life and human limitations and so forth, but is instead sort of owning them really for the first time because our sin has corrupted us. So um, becoming truly human in the presence of God was my way of trying to summarize what is Lewis always getting at? What is he always trying to push his readers? And that seems to encapsulate it. So you know, there's chapters in there on some of his theology. Uh, there's chapters in there on prayer. There's chapters in there on pride and humility and the natural loves. And uh, in that book, I draw less on Narnia because I'd already done that in Live Like a Narnia. Mm-hmm. And so this was sort of like everything else. So there's stuff from the Space Trilogy, Screwtape Letters, Letters to Malcolm, Great Divorce, Till We Have Faces, and plus, you know, lots of essays. Those were the places that I was really drawing from in order to do that book. I give a talk on theosis. And at the very end, I use that quote at the end of Mere Christianity when it talks about when you lose yourself, you'll find yourself. And I'm kind of thinking of that right now as you were describing all of this, is that concept of when when you give yourself to God and you truly let go of your ego, he actually gives you your true authentic self back, which is a little counterintuitive. Right. And I've always wondered, what does that look like? 
on a daily basis. What are these practices? And so you've convinced me that this is definitely my next book. Yeah, awesome. Well, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Appreciate it. So we usually have a drink that we're doing here. We're recording this listeners in the morning at like 9.30 Eastern time. And so I just have a caffeinated beverage here to, uh, to get me going. Do you have anything you're sipping on? Yeah, I've got a Diet Coke. I like it. Well, cheers before we get started. There you go. Cheers. So let's start with, I always love to start in these conversations just to hear the individuals and in this case, you, your first encounter with Lewis and, and just what role he's played on your spiritual journey. Yeah. You know, it's a funny question because uh, I, you know, I get asked it a lot doing interviews like this or, or giving talks. And, uh, and the funny thing is I don't have a like distinct, well, I, I should, I don't have a distinct member of the first mm-hmm. because I kind of grew up in a Christian home and uh, I assume you know, it's one of those like I assume that I either read or had read to me the Narnia Chronicles at some point because I know that they were sort of a part of the mental furniture of my like I remember in high school probably rereading them and I think I wrote a paper for my in my public high school English class on some of like Christian themes in it and so it was already sort of enough of the mental furniture of my life at that point but I don't remember the first time. Um, I do have a distinct memory when I was probably about 12 or 13, reading Mere Christianity for the first time mm. and trying to explain it to my parents. <laughs> it's not what I was doing at 12. You know, I was like a heady kid, a little, you know, I like to read a lot and, and was a little mm. nerdy and stuff like that. Uh, I played sports, but like I loved to, to read and I read this and it was like, I, I guess it, sort of the the logic muscles had not yet been fully engaged before. And this book like did that. Mm-hmm. And I remember trying to explain to them the argument from the moral law from the beginning. And like, cause it, cause it made sense to me. And I was like, oh yeah, like we always are talking about fair play and that was wrong. And how dare you? And that means that there must be a moral law that we all recognize, you know, and I was trying to explain it to them and not doing it very well because they were like, what are you talking about? What are you reading right now? <laughs> So it's, it's ironic. Like I think my first distinct memory of Lewis is actually one of frustration, <laughs> trying to explain something that was profound to me to someone else and not being able to do it very well. So thankfully, you know, you mature and, and you hopefully get a little better at being able to explain those things to people. But that was at least my first memory of Lewis. I love it. That's actually the thing. David had me interview a gentleman who wrote an entire book on the moral law because I've actually always struggled with that argument for the existence of God. It's one that just hasn't hasn't clicked in my head yet. Sure. And so David literally takes this person and says, "Here you go, try to shoot holes in his argument and good luck." And that was quite that was quite the interview. So you dedicate the book. Who do you dedicate the book to? Yeah, I dedicate it to my uh, you know, I wrote this probably a decade ago. And so I dedicated it to I have three sons now, but then I only had two. Mm. So Sam and Peter are my two oldest boys. My youngest, uh, who's four, uh, is actually named Jack after Lewis. That was the first book I wrote. It was the most fun book that I, I wrote. And so I dedicated to them. I think I put in there something about um, being true sons of Arkenland, first in, last out, laughing loudest, which is sort of my um, rough and ready summary of King Loon's words to his sons in Horse and His Boy. And my rough and ready definition of masculinity mm. um, and masculine leadership is first in, last out, laughing loudest. And so that was something we've said around my house, uh, you know, ever since the boys were kids. And uh, so, yeah, that's who I dedicated to. I love it. And maybe we'll be able to uh, touch on that idea of uh, King Loon a little bit later here in the conversation. Yeah. And then what, what led to 
the creation of this book? Like, what was the impetus where you're like, you know what, I want to write this book and here's what I hope people get out of it? Yeah. So I think once I got into, uh, you know, I, we moved to Bethlehem after college, after I graduated from college, I, was, I went to Texas A&M. We moved to Minnesota to be a part of the Bethlehem Institute and to prepare for, for ministry. My wife and I, I just got married in 2005. I did a two-year apprenticeship here and then was offered a job in a kind of pilot undergraduate program, like a one-year kind of gap year sort of program. So a friend and I were sort of leading that. And somewhere in there, I think I read Michael Ward's book, Planet Narnia, just come out 2008. And I picked it up and was just like, oh, this is amazing. And it really kind of re, you know, stoked the, the Lewis fire for me and sent me back into the Chronicles particularly. But as I did it, I realized, oh man, there's all this planetary stuff, which I thought was really fascinating academically and, and whatever. But also just a fresh view of the Christian discipleship elements. Like this, this book really does, has shaped me. I read it a lot in college and things like that. And so it was through that that I started teaching a course at the church on, I don't remember what I called it, but it was something like Live Like an Arnian. Hmm. And it was kind of working through the Christian themes as well as sort of introducing Ward's thesis about the medieval planets. And so I taught that for a, a couple of times. And then as we were getting ready for the the 50th anniversary of his of Lewis's death in 2013, died in 63. So 2013, Bethlehem was going to do a conference uh, on Lewis. It was the final national conference that Desiring God did. And uh, they asked me to speak at it on Narnia, uh, give, give a talk on live like an Narnian. I, you know, guys there knew I love that stuff. And so, oh, sure. I'd love to do that. And so that was probably in like uh, February or March. The conference was in September. And at the time, I, I had had this idea of like, I'd love to write a little book at some point on the Black and Narnian. And it was like, this was sort of like the golden opportunity. And so it was really because I had this, I, I wanted to launch the book at the conference that I was like, well, I better write it then. <laughs> and so I had all my notes from the classes I taught. And so I just started writing chapters. And basically the way it would work is um, I would write two or three chapters. I'd work through the book, listen to the book, um, take notes, try to you know group them into kind of two or three themes per book, basically, is what I did. And I would write those chapters, and then I would invite a bunch of my students over for pizza, and I would read the chapters to them out loud, and then get feedback. Like, did it make sense? Or I, in reading it, I would discover, like, oh, I didn't actually explain that very well, so I'd mark that and then go edit. And so that was, so rather than, I didn't actually have a true editor. I just had <laughs> about, you know, 10 college students or something like that, um, sitting in a living room, picking it apart and going, oh, that didn't really make sense. Or what, have you thought about this thing? And and that was the editorial process. And so I did that over the course of about, I don't know, uh, three months. Wow. You know, is every two weeks we'd have like another pizza and Narnia night at my house. And that's how the book got written. I published it myself. No publisher was going to, you know, have that fast of a turnaround. And so I was like, sure, I'm just going to do it. So I figured out how to use Amazon's, you know, self-publishing platform and uh, put it together so that it could launch. I had a friend, uh, one of my colleagues did the cover and formatted and did the layout inside. He's really good with uh, typeface and, and design and stuff like that. So he he put that together and made it really, you know, it looks like a real book, basically, as I always like to visit. It's, it's, it looks like a real book. <laughs> and then we got it ready and then launched it at, at that conference with that talk. And so, and since then, you know, it's actually like, it's a pretty consistent seller. Like it's not, you know, it's, no, nobody's out there marketing it really. Like I don't, you know, market it. But like pretty consistently, it does about the same sales numbers every year, uh, either on Kindle or in hard copy as just people kind of word of mouth, like, oh, you should read this. You should read this. And, little, you know, podcasts like this kind of give it a little boost. And, <laughs> and uh, so I'm happy because it's just kind of like this steady little 
little book. And I've got these other books now that I've written since then that with, you know, real publishers that have marketing and, and really push that. And that's great. I always have like a, a little affection for Live Like an Arnie and precisely because it was just, I just did it. I just was like, I love this and I'm going to do it. It makes me think of Diana Glyer in her whole talks on collaboration and the role of creativity through collaboration. Yeah. I think she would greatly approve of the process of how you wrote this with the, the college students' feedback and constant yeah. critiquing. I love it. Yeah, I think all of my books actually have been basically written out of classrooms or sermons. So, you know, sermon series, you know, uh, got turned into a book or uh, some talks. I have a book on uh, fighting sexual sin that was basically a series of talks. <laughs> and it was like, I, I got to do that a couple of times just to really know it. And then the, the writing kind of comes after and through that. I'll have to check that book out because I've worked with a lot of men's groups around here, uh, particularly on sexual sin. That one's called More Than a Battle, How to Experience Victory, Freedom, and Healing from, from Lust. Uh, that came out a couple years ago. So, yeah. Man, you've, you're just, you're giving me a lineup of books. <laughs> it actually has some Lewis in there because Lewis in some letters talks about the struggle with the imagination and pornography and things like that. There's a letter where yeah. he talks about that, that sort of danger and, and gives some counsel. And so I pick up his counsel and kind of fill it out. That's incredible. I have this deep temptation to go down these tangents of these other books, but I'm going <laughs> to- That's I'm right. Gonna, what are we talking about? I know. I'm literally, we have this joke because David is very, very structured. So we now call it Batesian rigidity. That's always in the back of my mind, David, listening to this being like, all right, Matt, move on to the next question. Get to the point. <laughs> exactly. Before getting into some of your key lessons, uh, in the introduction, you speak uh, a lot about mimesis, if I'm saying that right. Mimesis. <laughs> mimesis. Thank you. Yes. I love the idea of mimetic desire. Uh, that's yeah. I was thinking of that. So why is this important in education? Why do you write about this? Sorry, Dave. We're going to rabbit trail again. So I actually teach a class uh, at Bethlehem. I'll probably continue to teach a version of it at New St. Andrews on Shakespeare and mimetic desire. Mm. Wish I had you as a teacher. <laughs> that's a fun little side hobby as well. So yeah, that's a great little rabbit trail. Anyway, uh, so Lewis, so mimesis though is the you know Greek word for imitation, and uh, I think I picked this up from Peter Lightheart and some things he he'd written um, about the role of the imagination and imitation in forming us as people. And of course, we normally think of that in terms of like our parents, like you imitate your parents or your teachers or your peers, right? We become like who we hang out with. Bad company corrupts good character. Mm -hmm. That sort of principle. So choose your friends wisely because you'll become like them. And I think I remember uh, Peter Lightheart saying something to the effect of um, books are friends mm. and movies are friends and entertainment. Yes. Those go in the friend bucket. That's where, you, and I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. And in fact, he said in, in many ways, they can be more potent sometimes than like, you know, real life friends because you get the interiority of those characters, right? In a novel, you're inside a character's head and therefore sort of absorbing more of them than you ever could in some ways than a real person because you can't get inside the head. They can, they can talk to you, but you don't get that same kind of like uh, see things through their eyes. Yep. And so it was just kind of like a light bulb went off of, of just, wow, books do shape us. And then as you immediately start to reflect about certain books, you realize Oh man, yeah, that book has totally shaped how I think, and and I imitate that. Or and in the modern world, you know, movies and and, and entertainment, television, things like that, function similarly. Um, so these stories sort of shape the scripts that we play out, the way that we uh, live, and so it's a really significant thing to think about. Then, if you think about your education as you're choosing your friends, and these friends are going to shape who you are for the rest of your life, yep. it kind of adds a gravity to those choices. Now you can still, you know, you can read a lot of bad books um, because you don't know if they're bad before you read them. 
But in terms of the books that you come back to again and again, and the way that you sort of lean into them and, and receive what they're offering, that's what authors, especially authors of fiction, are often proposing. A, here's a proposed world. Here's a possible world. Try this on for size. Here's the way the world might be, could be. And you, you try that on and try to inhabit it. You, you suspend your belief, the, the willing suspension of disbelief, and enter in and you try it on. And that's a really risky process because if it's ungodly, if it's false, if it's lies, and you try it on and like it, you can sort of inhabit that. You can inhabit that story and much to your destruction. Or if it's a good story, it can kind of draw things out of you or put things into you that weren't there before. And, uh, and so it's a really big deal to, to choose your friends wisely. I'm actually thinking back to your other book of the, the sexual sin and temptation. Yes. It's interesting. There's this, this program I did a number of years ago called Exodus 90 that's meant to help individuals in general with addictions, dopamine, but then also sexual sin is, is a big thing. It was actually developed for men, particularly before they go into the uh, priesthood, but then they kind of expand it to much more common. And one of the big things it talks about is being very, very careful with the content you consume. Yep. And I love the way you phrase that from a medic perspective, and I never really thought about it from that perspective. But yeah, when you're the music, the podcasts, the romance movies you're watching that really normalize certain behaviors, right? you think you can rise above it. Right. But it is really tough. And so this thing literally has you pretty much cut media out of your life Yeah, for 90 days. It's amazing how, I don't want to say easy, because yeah. the cutting of the media is actually incredibly tough. But once you actually successfully do that, how much temptation just drastically drops because you don't have these negative influences coming into your life. I mean, it's really incredible, actually. Right. That's absolutely, that's absolutely right. It's what, what, one of the first piece of advice in, in More Than a Battle is um, create artificial boundaries in order to starve the beast. Mm. And, and the idea is not, you know, never watch a movie again, but there's sort of a, <laughs> what's fueling this fire? And let's see if we can kind of pull that, some of that fuel out and sort of shrink it down to manageable size and then you can kill it. Hmm. But as long as you're just feeding it with trash and with, you know, these influences, um, it's going to feel overwhelming and it won't work. So that's absolutely right. I love it. I love that we started with that. So for the rest of this, how I structured this was kind of two parts. The first part was, as I went through it, I was taking notes on every chapter and there was, I wanted to highlight a few that honestly, selfishly, I loved. And so okay. I wanted to just unpack them a little bit with yourself. And then after that, we have covered, in between each season, we cover Narnia books. We've been slowly over the last six years going through a number of the Narnia books. And we thought we'd just take one of them and share a lesson or a theme of your choice from yeah. there. So I really want to start too, right away with the the chapter three, which was the quote that I chose from because my favorite book is The Great Divorce by him. I love that concept of heavenly hellish creatures. I love in a secular sense, that concept of self-authoring. Think through the future self you want to be and what actions you take to get there. And so you have this, this title or this quote, we will become who we are becoming. And so how do we see this in Narnia? I think you use Edmund as that example. And what can we learn from, from the Narnian series on that concept of how it, we see it playing out, but then also how we can correct it in our own life? Yeah, that, that chapter is, is, is actually a really interesting one because I do think people do gravitate to that one for particular reasons. And where it came from was realizing that every kid when they read Narnia has this like fantasy of like, but what if I could get it? Like, what if I found a wardrobe? <laughs> like, every, like, you know, like if we don't have wardrobes these days really as much, but like if you ever found one and you're like 10, you're like, I'm going to open it. 
And I'm going to see because you never know. And so there's this notion of like, I really want to get into Narnia because it's such a magical place. The interesting thing is though, the way that Lewis has set it up is Narnia is not an automatic good just because you get into Narnia. It matters what kind of person you are on this side of the wardrobe. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Lucy gets in and she meets a fawn and a best friend and they have tea and it's awesome. Edmund gets in and he meets the white witch. Like that's the first person he meets and becomes enslaved to her Turkish delight. And so, but why is that? Well, because God is writing this story. Lewis is writing the story, but like, this is the way the world works. Like Providence governs. And so if you are um, a nasty, beastly boy, who's always picking on his sister and picking on smaller kids and being punk, like if you're that kind of person and you get into Narnia, you will meet the white witch. You won't mm -hmm. meet the fawn. You won't meet you know, um, the Robin, you know, like you're not going to meet the good characters who are going to continue that on. You're going to um, reap what you sow. Yep. And so that kind of really was where that chapter came from and how things that at, at one level, what Lewis is showing us is like little sins um, become big sins unless they're addressed, unless they're mm -hmm. repented of, unless they're put to death, little sins become big, big sins. And so the resentment and, and uh, nastiness that Edmund has just sort of as a normal, as a kid at the beginning of the book becomes, you know, amplified by his time in Narnia with the witch enslaving him and then him betraying his family, like turning, you know, to her side, rejecting Aslan, all of those sort of things are the result of like little sins becoming big sins without any repentance. The biblical term for that, right, is just you reap what you sow. So if you sow those kind of seeds, guess what kind of crop you're going to get. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, that's the basic trajectory is, and then Lucy, meanwhile, is sowing friendship and loyalty and kindness and as a result, she's reaping friendship and loyalty and kindness, because that's also the way that the world works. And uh, now the the great thing, and this is what I, I love about what Lewis does, is it's not, there's no fatalism. It's not like, oh, you sowed some bad seed and therefore you're doomed because there's grace. Mm -hmm. And so Edmund sows all the bad seed in the world, betrays his family, ends up enslaved, chained to a tree and about to be executed. <laughs> And then Aslan rescues him, right? Aslan sends them and they, and they, and they rescue him. And so that's the, the, that's grace. That's the intrusion mm -hmm. of God's kindness, despite our sin and our folly. And so on, on the one hand, the quote is true. We will be who we are becoming. Like, what road are you on? Eventually you're going to come to the end of it. That's the way that the world works. But God also interrupts and intervenes and puts you on a different path. You can turn around. It's possible. This is the whole point of what you said. Great, great divorce is about you know, um, was Lewis say, if you're going down the wrong road, the shortest way to get to your destination is to turn back and go the other way. It feels like, oh no, I'm going the wrong way. Well, don't keep going that way. Go the other <laughs> way. And that's what repentance is, is, is turning back to the, the, the way you ought to be going. I love it. Let's turn to chapter eight. I brought this one in because one of my favorite, I don't know favorite, but like concepts and ideas I've heard lately is this both and idea. And what I mean is justice and mercy. Okay. It seems like today in the political world, but then also in the Christian world, you'll get these factions of it's all about mercy or it's all about justice. And a, a person I love to listen to, Bishop Barron, talks about how it's a both and. And you use this word, mercy without justice, that word, quote, is not merciful. And so you have this conversation on Eustace, a bit on progressivism, humanitarianism, and it just really fascinated me. And so I'd love to unpack that a little bit of what you meant by the humanitarian progressivism, what Lewis is trying to do here in Narnia to combat that. 
Yeah. So the humanitarian theory of punishment is something Lewis wrote a couple of essays about this. That's the title of one of his essays. Uh, I think there's another one called maybe Delinquents in the Snow. And then it's a major theme in That Hideous String. Hmm. The basic idea is this is the uh, of what was in vogue in his day, still is in many ways, um, is a different mode or approach to retribution or, or punishment or correction to crime, things like that. And the idea was basically that the retributive model where if you do X, then you get proportionate punishment, right? So retribution is about sort of eye for an eye kind of principle. And the idea from some progressives was that's a very um, cruel approach to justice is retribution. And of course, for Christians, that, that's the, kind of the core of the sort of Bible, the Bible's narrative, like is, you know, the, the, the law works in terms of eye for an eye. And then uh, the, the substitutionary atonement works by sort of substituting and taking the retribu- retribution upon yourself. So it's pretty core to Christianity. But these modern progressives were going to be kinder than and mer- more merciful than God is. In doing so, they posited a humanitarian where uh, theory of punishment, where basically it does away with that retribution, and instead uh, it says it views crime in pathological terms, and so it's like a disease that needs mending. And so what's framed is then, okay, you do a crime and then we have to cure you of the crime and we decide when you're cured. Hmm. And Lewis rightly recognized that like, that is like a recipe for like unending. You could do all kinds of things to people because you just decide they're not yet cured. They haven't yet been fixed. Hmm. So it abolishes justice and, and wants to substitute mercy for it. And they think this is going to be a better way, but it actually unleashes abominable cruelties, Lewis says. Because mercy, he says, detached from justice becomes unmerciful. And, uh, and so you don't think about proportionality and fitness and ordinary juries. It's all in the form of experts. It's all about healing diseases. And, and, then, you, and then what Lewis realizes is, and in fact, if part of the goal of your punishment is to deter other people from committing that crime, you don't actually actually have to convict guilty people, right? Like it could actually be effective to find an innocent person, give them the treatment, and it will dissuade a bunch of people from doing it and crime will go down. But it's profoundly cruel and evil to punish an innocent person in that way. And so he just recognized that like this humanitarian theory of punishment, which was very in vogue in his day, as a replacement for the Christian view of justice and mercy. Strict justice is you get what you deserve. And then Christianity had seasoned that with, and then having pronounced the sentence, judges, for example, can be merciful. They can take into account mitigating circumstances. And they can be lenient and show the kindness, but justice comes first. And this tried to say, let's just get rid of justice and just do the whole mercy thing. And it's profoundly cruel. And the reason Lewis thought is that people who think that they're, they're they think they're being good people. Hmm. They think I'm being a good judge. I'm being a good person by getting rid of justice. And therefore they can do crazy cruelties to other people without any qualms and conscience. Lewis's line that the, the worst kind of tyranny is a, is a tyranny exercised for the good of its victims. Like, I, this is for your good. We're fixing you. And therefore, they, they don't feel bad about all of the things they're inflicting on you. So that's, that's the basics. Now, and so then Lewis, what I argue is that Lewis kind of works some of that into certain elements of Narnia as a way of preparing us to recognize it in the real world. I like that because today it feels honestly quite applicable <laughs> to yes. a lot of the conversations. I was surprised to see that in the book in the first place, but now it's like, man, I really, I, I like this. So I appreciate you unpacking that. The good example of that, I think in, uh, you know, a real comment is it's this little side thing, but in, uh, I think it's Silverchair, 
and it shows up, I think, a little bit in um, Woods that on Treader about, about Eustace, is um, his school is a progressive school. It's called Experiment House. <laughs> if you say you want to experiment on kids, everybody goes, oh, that doesn't sound good. Um, but say it's an experiment house and it's all fine. And the whole thing is that as Lewis describes the, the methods of education, it's they don't teach math, they don't teach Latin, and they don't read books with dragons in them. Instead, uh, they don't read the Bible. Instead, they had the idea that boys and girls should be allowed to do what they liked. And what some of the boys and girls, bigger boys and girls like to do is bully everybody else. And then they would get hauled into the principal's office and the principal would treat them as sort of psychological cases. And if you knew how to game the system, then the, the bullies could become the favorites of the headmaster and, and keep going, doing their bullying and then, you know, you know, scratching this humanitarian itch in her. And it's just a tyranny like mm. Eustace and, and Jill are just absolutely under the thumb. And it's just an awful, awful school that, you know, Caspian has to come and hit everybody with swords and fix it. Um, but that's the sort of thing that Lewis is like, the idea that everybody should do what they like sounds, oh, that, that sounds nice. Yeah, we want people yeah. to do what they like. And it's like, what some people like is to do evil <laughs> and, and they do harm to other people. You actually need laws. You need restraint. And, and so that's, that's an example of the sort of thing that Lewis, the way he works that in. I love it. And then near the very end, I think your second to last chapter, chapter 15, you discuss the dark night, kind of like the dark night of the soul. Yep. That also has been something I've, I discussed when we went through the screw tape letters because I just feel like there's a good bit on there too of just going through some dark stuff. What were you trying to communicate there? What can we learn from that in the, the Narnia books? Yeah, that was that's a very personal chapter. Um, that I've had some seasons uh, of the dark night of the soul in, in my life, whether it's doubts, anxieties, panic attacks, um, you know, depression, that sort of stuff. Mm. And, uh, and so one of the things that struck me is how... A, the Narnia books in general helped that, like a you know, breath of fresh air. Um, but even more than that, how Tyrion in The Last Battle, um, this is sort of one of the main themes of the book, is that everything in that book goes wrong. So from the outset, it's like, it's just you're doomed. Like all of the things, you know, Aslan shows up, but he's not really Aslan because it's, you know, um, the ape and puzzle. And Tyrion like tries to make plans. He says, we're going to go do this. We're going to do this. And every time he makes a plan, like it immediately gets stomped on, like everything goes wrong. And so it's just like nothing is going his way. And eventually he ends up tied to a tree in this moment of desperation. And he's calling out to Aslan. So this is like the dark night. Mm. It's literally, <laughs> it's literally dark in the story. He's tied to a tree. He's in despair and he's calling out for help to God. And God doesn't answer directly, right? And now, of course, God does deliver him. He sends two children, and that doesn't look like deliverance to Tyrion at first. But but there's this notion of like that that spiral into despair and the darkness that can kind of settle in. And one of the lines that I think is in there is something to the effect of uh, Tyrion said, when he, he cried out, nothing happened, but there began to be a change in him, mm. right? So So there was some kind of like even... The calling out that the darkness just went on. Let me, you know, let me be killed. I don't. I want nothing. Just come and save. And and there was no change in the night, but there began to be a kind of change inside Tyrion. Without knowing why, he began to feel a faint hope, and he felt somehow stronger. And it was that sort of notion that I was like, I get that, mm -hmm. right? Like there, there is a way of like calling out to God. This is what the psalmist does uh, in the Bible. He is in his despair. He calls on the Lord, and the circumstances don't always change, but but there begins to be a change in us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think that that's, that was just hope giving for me. 
And then I, I love the, you know, sometimes when I, when I, you know, people ask me to sign their copy of Live Like an Arnian. And one of the ways I often, often sign it is, may you always live between the paws of the true Aslan. Because that's sort of the recurring thing in that book is there's a false Aslan um, who, you know, it's like a black sun. It's, it, you know, it's, it's lies. He's selling everybody into slavery. But they continue to cling to the true Aslan. And so, you know, we'll, we'll receive whatever, take the adventures that Aslan send us. And so that was sort of the stabilizing effect that, that the books have had on me. As again, back to what we said about Mimesis, Tyrion's like a friend who went through a dark night mm. and can help us go through our own dark nights. What I think too, I, I, I loved what I resonated with was, and I always have to be careful, I consume a lot of content to make sure I'm not mixing up something else. But the conversation too, <laughs> I, I believe you said, of sometimes we have to ask ourselves when we're in a dark night, are we being obedient and it's maybe a gift from God? Yes. Or is it self-induced? I mean, I guess it both technically be a gift, but one could be self-induced from our sin and it's meant to do a course correction. Or it could be you are remaining obedient and there's something else in there for him. And I've seen it both in my life. There's been times where knowing that helps me realize I'm creating my dark night right now. Right. Or this is one where it's it's a gift and a challenge for me to grow closer to God. I'm being obedient. And uh, and so I, I just love that distinction too. Yeah. So you got to ask yourself, am I Job? And this mm. is a test. Or is am I David after Bathsheba? And this is God arresting my attention. Yes. And getting me to turn. And and I, Lewis is so helpful on this. He quotes George MacDonald a lot, right? Um, Obedience is the opener of eyes. Um, and so when you find yourself in the pit, the last thing you should do is disobey or walk away and, you know, sort of put God to the test that way and say, well, God, I'll obey you if you show up. And, and it's really the, the more frequent pattern is God saying, no, I'll show up when you obey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Like that's the, the pathway to light. Jesus says this, if anyone's will is to do my will, he will know that the teaching is true. And so if you, if you will to do God's will, in other words, if you're obedient, then that's the path to sort of assurance but there's not another way. And that's, um, you know, my favorite quote, probably from all of Lewis, I quote it more than anything else. Um, I think it shows up twice in, in Live Like an Arnie and it shows up in the other book. So I, I use it a lot is our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do the enemy's will. This is from Screwtape. Looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished. Asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. And so that's the dark night, right? Like I, I'm no longer desiring, but I'm still intending. I'm still going to do what God wants. God seems to have abandoned me. I don't know why. I pray. I cry out to God, why have I been forsaken? And then I still obey. And that's what Tyrion does in the book. And that's where the deliverance comes. And so that's the, the counsel that we should have for people when they're in the pit. That's probably my number one favorite quote. Maybe number two outside of the great divorce that I will be done one, because I think there's a lot of truth in that. But when I came across that in the screw tape letters, when we were doing that season two years ago, it was right after COVID. I was in a pretty dark spot from the isolation, a new location, no longer having my community. And that quote was just... So I love it. Yeah. <laughs> just also yeah. continues to get me more excited to read your other books because it sounds like you write a lot of stuff that I would enjoy. Yeah, good. So let's quickly just go through um, the five books that we've gone through, Magician's Nephew, Silver Chair, Voyage of Dawn, Treader, Prince Caspian, and Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. And just love to get just kind of a key theme uh, that you thought from a discipleship perspective from each of these. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, let's start with uh, Magician's Nephew. Yeah, so I think the, the Magician's Nephew one that just off the top of my head uh, leaps out is the, uh, 
the trajectory. I mean, it's it's related to that. We will become who we will be who we're becoming. Yep. And uh, it's the way that Diggory, Uncle Andrew, and Jadis are all meant to like sort of be foils for each other. There's the same evil present in each of them. And it's this sort of like, I'm above it. There's a, there's a kind of pride. Jadis talks, and Andrew talk about the high and lonely destiny. She's the great, you know, so if you take the, the most extreme form, she's the evil queen who like killed her whole civilization out of, you know, this petty war with her sister. And there's the dungeons and there's the slaves and she's just evil, evil, evil. And she thinks she's above ordinary morality. That's the full grown tree of evil. Uncle Andrew has the same mentality where he's like, I'm the great scientist. I don't put myself at risk. I put, you know, hamsters and children at risk. Morality is for women and children, and but not for great men like me. I'm above it all. Ours is a high and lonely destiny. And so he's a little bit absurd, like when we, we laugh at him, but it's the same mentality that Jadis has. Mm. And so and that's why we don't like him. He's the, he's the evil uncle. Um, but then when we work it down to Diggory, Diggory has that in him too. And I think it's important that we see that, that it's not like, oh, there's the two bad characters and then the two good characters, you know, Polly and, and Diggory. It's that Diggory has the same evil in him. He can look at the rules, you know, beware, don't, don't ring the bell and go, yeah, they don't apply to me. I'm going to ring it anyway. Mm. And he can be nasty to Polly and and say some really mean things and cruel things. You're just like a girl. And Lewis highlights that that like when he does stuff like that, the narrator will comment. And it, when he said it, he looks very much like his uncle. And so the idea is like this is like the seed form. And then if it does, if it goes unchecked, it's going to become Uncle Andrew and maybe Jadis. And it's the same thing with Edmund. Sort of the classic example would be like you know like at some point Hitler was a baby, you know like. He, he was toddling around in a room somewhere and fell down and laughed and it would have been very cute. And yet like at some point, like the evil just metastasized and it grew and it was unchecked and it became this, you know, horrific thing. And all of us have to recognize we have that inside of us. Like that's there. Uh, there's a great line from That Hideous Strength where uh, Belbury is the name of the, the bad guys, the NICE, that's where they, their headquarters is. And one of the good characters after a moment of like when he gets frustrated and angry and impatient, asks himself, is there a bellberry inside of me too? So like, here's this like, you know, horrible secret society thing that's going to imprison the whole world and is in league with demons. Mm -hmm. And he's like, is that in me too? And the answer is yes, unless you put it to death, unless you bring it to God and confess it. Yes, you have a bellberry inside of you and you have, you have a Jadis in your heart mm -hmm. and you need to kill it. So that'd be, that'd be the place to start. The concept that I always come back to with Lewis is just obedience. I've loved that word. That's been a new word that we've been talking about a lot on the podcast. And so, yeah, that's beautiful. How about The Silver Chair? This is probably my favorite book at the moment. Mm -hmm. Man, so much to say here. Um, I would say the, the Puddle Glum speech at the end, that final, that final chapter about the Queen and Underland when Rillian's been rescued, um, Silver Chair's been destroyed, she comes back and then tries to bewitch them. What I would say is I think it's probably the most profound analysis of modernity that there could be. Meaning like he packed so much into that enchantment scene um, about the way that the modern world works, the way it numbs us, puts us to sleep, the way that you know we forget the supernatural. And so I've got a ch whole chapter in, in Live Like an Arnian on this, but I actually have plans uh, to expand and fill that out probably in a, in a full book. It'll probably be called Puddleglum's Faith. I like that. 
and it's just going to be a similar sort of deal. We're wrestling with um, the dark enchantment because here, here's the profound thing. I think a lot of modern people, um, there's a thesis that kind of goes around that you know the medieval world, the ancient world was enchanted, right? There was fairies and there was angels, there was demons, and there was more than just material reality. And so the ancient world was enchanted. And then the modern world, the enlightenment came along and the modern world came along and it disenchanted the world. And so now the world is disenchanted and therefore the call for Christians, for example, sometimes you'll hear people say, is to re-enchant the world. We need to re-enchant the world. Lewis actually did not think that. Hmm. And it sounds plausible. It's like, oh, you know, we used to believe in fairies and magic and we used to believe in angels and demons, but now we believe in science and technology because they just substitute. And so the world's disenchanted. It's all just matter in motion. It's material, chemical, whatever. Laws of physics. Lewis regarded that as a dark enchantment. He didn't think it was a disenchantment. He said, no, no, that's the dark enchantment. You had a dark spell put on you. Ah. The world actually is, you know, full of mysterious forces and powers and agents and giants and dragons and, and angels and demons and God and all of these supernatural things are real. We've been numbed and dulled and lulled to sleep. We've been put under a dark spell. And a big part of his ministry actually is trying to break that spell. Hmm. He's trying to break the dark enchantment. So it's not that we've been disenchanted. It's that we've been enchanted by a dark magician. And, uh, and I just think that's a really profound, like it just kind of, it's one of those, it turns the whole problem inside out because it feels different to say the world really is uh, not enchanted at all. It's just matter. And then we have to kind of add the magic. Like put the magic on top of it. Like that's the special sauce. Let's add the special magic. You can't do that because if you feel like the world really, the way things really are is disenchanted, no magic. Then if you know you're putting magic, you know, it's fake. You know, it's just, you're doing it. But Lewis is like, yeah, that's not the way it is. It actually is magic. The reason you think it's not is because you've been blinded Mm. by a witch. And then Puddleglum is the one who breaks the spell. And I just think his little speech there is one of the most, profound um things that, that can be so you can go read that chapter that one's fun i was about to to press you and ask a little bit more of how you can break that enchantment but i like the teaser so people have to go read it because if you just heard that monologue that's what you're thinking right now how do i break this <laughs> you can probably go find uh online somewhere i did a lecture back in february of this year called puddle glum's faith hmm. rigney puddle glum's faith lecture something like that if you go google that and that'll give you the the fuller version i love it so then let's uh, jump to the voyage to dawn treader yeah, so um, I think the fall. This is related to that other one. Hmm. It's the folly of nothing buttery. I think this is this is part of that modern enchantment. It's the line at the end when they meet Ramondu or Karaikin. I forget which one actually says it. He's a fallen star, and Eustace says, "In my world, a star is oh, it's just a huge ball of flaming gas." And then I guess it's Ramondu replies, "Even in your world, my son, that's not what a star is. It's just what it's made of." Uh-huh. And the notion there is that our temptation in the modern world is to reduce everything to its material components. Mm. I called this nothing buttery and I can't remember where it came from. It may have come from Doug Wilson, but I think it actually comes from a philosopher. And the idea is um, when we say things like, well, that's nothing but, or that's only, or that's just, or that's merely, that kind of language when we're, that's reductionistic. Mm. We're reducing something big down to something small. So, um, you, you could say about human beings, we're nothing but matter in motion. Love's a good example. Love 
wow, love's an amazing thing. No, it's, it's nothing but chemicals in your brain. <laughs> That's nothing buttery. Okay. It's scientific reductionism. And our technologies sort of, that's part of the enchantment is that they make us think that that's all there is. And Lewis thought this was stupid um, and foolish and that there's more, um, you know, things in heaven on earth than are dreamt of in our philosophies. Mm -hmm. And that therefore um, he's trying to break out of that and say, no, that's not what a star is. A star, yeah, a star is a ball of flaming gas, but that's not all it is. It's more than that. Um, It might be a a wizard. <laughs> and I actually think Lewis, I, I think actually probably believes something like this. I think that Christians ought to believe something like this, um, which is that in the Bible, angels and stars are linked. There's a chapter on this in the Live Like an Arnian on angels and stars, because the stars in their courses fought against Sisera and the heavenly host and all of that kind of language is both stars and angels. And so if stars are basically steered by angelic, obedient angelic beings, that seems to be to be very natural and normal. But we go, well, no, no, we just know it's hydrogen and helium at high temperatures. And it's like, well, that's one level of explanation that's perfectly reasonable and true, but that's not an exhaustive explanation. Mm-hmm. And that's our, that's the folly. And so I'd say that's that's a lesson from Voyages on Treader is don't be reductionistic. That's a good one. Prince Caspian. Uh, oh, got to be Trumpkin. Uh, <laughs> Trumpkin. Trumpkin's a great character. Uh, he said, there's a, there's a, again, a foil. Lewis does this in these books a lot. It's a very good literary feature. Is he'll have characters that you're meant to look at in light of each other, like Uncle Andrew, Jadis, and Diggory. In this one, it's you've got Trumpkin, you've got uh, the Badger, and then you've got Nickabrick, the Black Dwarf. And they're all three, they're friends, but like they all orient to Caspian and to Aslan differently. With the badger, Truffle Hunter, being sort of faithful, loyal, we, we're, I'm a beast, I don't forget. Nickabrick being like, I don't care, I just want power, and I don't care if we have to get it from hags and ogres and the White Witch. Um, so he's gone bad. And then Trumpkin is this interesting one because he doesn't believe in the old stories. He doesn't believe in Aslan. He doesn't believe in the kings. He thinks it's all Bilge and Beanstalks, but he's not evil. And so there's a line that he gets toward the end when they're going to send them on the journey. Uh, they, they're going to blow the horn and they need to go to the magic spots because that's where maybe the magic will happen. And uh, he volunteers to go, even though he doesn't believe in it. And they're shocked by this. They're like, what are you, you don't even believe in the horn. You don't believe that any, any magical help's going to come. And he's like, you're right. I don't, but I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. Mm-hmm. I love that line. You've had my advice. Now it's time for the orders. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I gave you my advice. I think this is stupid. You're the King. You didn't listen. Uh, to my advice. So now tell me what you want me to do. And I will cheerful and he'll cheerfully do it. And he does. And as a result, like everything works out well. And so that, that sort of attitude of like, I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. I give that advice to people frequently. I love that too, because that, that stuck out. There's so many I was trying to choose from. So I'm glad you hit the, the puddle glum one. I was going to throw in my section of the ones I loved and this exact thing you just brought up, because even in my own faith tradition, there's certain teachings and Rules always has a negative connotation, but rules that are really helpful for just disciplines and practices. And I remember when I was early on coming to my faith, there were certain ones I was like, I disagree with this, but I still would just surrender from an obedience perspective. So it's almost like I'd give my mental disagreeance to why I think this teaching is wrong. And then later, usually as I got more knowledgeable, I realized, oh, I was wrong there. And the the thousands of years that developed this, this teaching tended to be more right than I was. Um, but I took that same thing. Yeah. It was like, but obey because it just, it breaks the ego at a minimum. Even if like, 
I'm not trying to necessarily condone following practices you don't 100% believe in, but like, let's even say you were right, but you obeyed. Just that act of obedience is such a powerful act right. that that is transformational in its own right. Just surrendering your will to another will, even if it's not 100% perfectly correct, because we're not always going to know that. A deference to elders, a deference to those in authority is a good place to start. Yes. And then finally, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Obviously, that could just be the admin one, to be honest, but. <laughs> yeah, it could. Uh, we, we could do, you know, the, the deep magic and the deeper magic, I think, is a good one. It's, mm. it's Lewis's way of talking about um, both the moral law, that's the deep magic, which is, you know, the, the emperor's magic. It can't be broken. It's the law of the world. It's the natural law. It's, it's baked into creation. If you try to overturn the emperor's magic, then the whole universe comes apart. And so this is this is the natural order. Lewis is really, you know, in, in uh, Abolition of Man, he calls it the Tao, and it is sort of the yeah natural law mm. baked into reality, moral law. But he says even deeper than the deep magic is the deeper magic, which is this sort of sacrificial love. That's the deeper magic that Aslan does in sacrificing himself to save Edmund, and that thing is more potent, and it causes death to work backwards and uh, and renews everything. And so just Lewis's way of weaving in those two fundamental Christian things, law and grace, law and salvation, sacrifice, um, is just a really profound thing. And it's, it's worth meditating and reflecting on. Mm. Before we do the wrap up, anything else that, that's uh, like a favorite one or example we missed? I mean, we covered a bunch of them, so you don't actually have to have anything here. But if there's any concluding thoughts. So we, we talked a little about Tyrion. So I think we got all but the only book we didn't cover was Horse and His Boy. And so maybe you just mentioned Loon. King Loon's my favorite character, though Puddleglum vies for it. So they they arm wrestle for the favorite. I've got a whole chapter on Loon because he's probably, this is a good example of the, to come back to that mimesis thing. When I think about fatherhood, as much as anything else, like Loon's in there, you know, prominent in the mix of what, it, what do I think about when it comes to being a father? Mm-hmm. He's happy. He's jovial. He's big hearted. He's firm. He disciplines. He trains his kids. Um, but he's got a he's got a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face. Um, he's very affectionate, and so like he's it, it's a it's a really remarkable thing. He's only in one of the chronicles and only for a little bit in like the last third of the book, and yet he's left a mark. And it's both sort of the way he is, so all of those traits I just mentioned, but also then that line where he is uh, saying, you know, this is what it means to be a king. Uh, to his sons. He's he's describing what kingship is. This is what it means to be a king, to be first in every desperate attack, to be last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and again in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder at a scantier meal than any man in your land. Mm. And so then I summarize that as first in, last out, laughing loudest. It's just a beautiful picture. That's what it means to be a king. And that's just what it means to be a man. Mm. I think that that's Lewis's way of talking about manhood and especially leadership. I actually think I just taught this to my undergrad students. I'm teaching a class on Shakespeare. And I actually think Lewis gets this from Henry V. Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Um, Everybody knows about sort of the, you know, once more under the breach, dear friends, that sort of famous, you know, today we talk about the Braveheart speech or, or something like that. And it's that kind of speech. And, and it's the, that's the first in last out bit. Um, but there's also a scene later where Henry's men are surrounded by the French army and they're outnumbered like 10 to one and it's nighttime and the next day is going to be the battle. And they're all just sitting there staring into the fire because they feel like they're doomed. And then Henry comes through the camp and with cheerfulness 
you know, slaps everybody on the shoulder, you know, looks him in the eye, says, you're my brother, you're my friend, you're my countryman. I'm glad you're here. We're going to be okay. And they says, it's like the sun, you know, shining a medicinal eye on all of his soldiers who then perk up like the, the, the pity and self-pity and despair goes away and they, they're, they're up. Mm. That's the laugh louder at a scantier meal. And so I think Lewis actually gets this from Shakespeare and then just pithily, you know, concisely summarizes it in this thing that's easy to memorize and is a beautiful picture of godly masculinity. I love that. I should have brought that up earlier because that is the, the you're talking about that with the dedication. So I'm glad you brought that in at the end. Well, Dr. Joe Rigney, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on. And I love this conversation. Yeah. So where can listeners find more about you, your books, talks, Instagram, social media stuff you might have? There's quite a bit of my content on Desiring God. Um, so, you know, lots of articles, talks, various things like that. There's a bunch of chapel, chapel type messages uh, and other sort of things at uh, Bethlehem College and Seminary. So bcsmn.edu, there's a lot of messages there. Twitter, Joe underscore Rigney. And then if you're a high school student and you're interested, um, I'll be at New St. Andrews this fall and we'd love to see you there. I love it. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much. And uh, listeners, please join us next time when we'll continue going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.